want to welcome you again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, we are continuing on in this series that we're calling The True and Better Story that we're spending about eight weeks in. And this is a story where we're just looking at um, the, what is the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, kind of the high points in that story, and really asking the question, how do we, how how do our stories fit into the bigger story? Um, theologians would call this kind of doing biblical theology. Um, systematic theology is where you take, look at topics in the scripture. Um, and oftentimes in the church, we go verse by verse through different books of the Bible. But every once in a while, it's good to, to kind of zoom out a little bit and ask, how does the Bible fit together? Those books that we read, those books that we study, um, what, how do they fit into the bigger story of the Bible. So that's what we are doing in this particular series. Like you'll, you saw and heard in that passage that Josh read, um, this is the part of the story where we see conflict arise. To use a more narrative term, we see the crisis. This is the crisis point in the story. Here in the third chapter, chapter three. And as we're introduced to the crisis, we're also introduced to the villain the enemy in the story. And with that comes also a giant problem that we now have in this story. A huge problem, a giant problem. And we'll get to that here in a second. But all stories have, have enemies, right? I mean, I would say the overwhelming majority of them, I can't think of one off the top of my head that doesn't actually have an enemy um, or an, an antagonist in the story. Most good stories do. Um, and, and, and most stories have problems that they face as well when that crisis point comes. And it's often the enemy or the villain that actually kind of creates that crisis. You have things like the, in, in, in the Star Wars saga, you have uh, kind of Darth Vader embodying evil, but you also have this, this, this dark side idea that very early on in the movies you're kind of um, you're introduced to, Right? In Lord of the Rings, you have Sauron, right? The, 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 the evil uh, kind of force and power that they're trying to um, kind of overthrow in the Lord of the Rings. And then you also have um, the Tammies in Parks and Rec, um, the enemies of um, Ron Swanson. So you see these enemies in these stories, these, these things that we love. Now, we got to go back to part one. We covered part one last week. If you were gone, this is where we looked at creation. This is when we looked at all things were good. All things were right. God created this, this garden Eden where things were very, very good. And humans were created to know God, to love God, to glorify God, to obey God, to spend time with God. And they did that in this garden called Eden. And things were so good and so right in this garden. But I think even now, before we even jump into this idea of, 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 of the problem in this new part of the story, we would say that we would, we would all agree that there's something wrong. There's something not right with the world, with this story we find ourselves in. This doesn't feel like Eden. This doesn't feel like God walking kind of in the cool of the day with human beings. Absence of pain and violence and worry and conflict. 
Our world does not feel like Eden. And no matter where you're at with Jesus, the church, God in this room, I think you would agree. There are problems all around us. So we feel this tension, right? We feel this tension that things aren't good. There's brokenness everywhere. That every once in a while we'll get these glimpses like the birth of a baby, um, a wedding day, a really good vacation with, with, with the people you love. It's like these little slivers of hope. You're like, oh, this, this feels good. Like this is right. It's, it's almost like you can't explain it with words because you know that this, this, is a, this is a break-in of Eden. This is a slice of the way God meant it to be. You think of artists. When you're, when you're in the presence of, of, of observing really, really good art, an, an artist that's the best at what they do, you get this little sliver of like, man, this is, this is kind of, we, we were made for another world, as one famous author put it, when you get glimpses of this. Maybe it's your, 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 the best athlete in your favorite sport. The way they do things on the field or the court make you feel like, I feel like I'm watching something that I can't even put words to in this moment. These are echoes of Eden that we see every day. Now, um, um, Justin Buzzard in his book, The Big Story, says this about this, this idea of this tension. Every person on the planet believes some sort of story to help them make sense of life, the world, and how it all works. Whatever story we believe, though, needs to account for all the pain in the world. There is pain inside of us all and all around us. It's everywhere. And we need to be able to make sense of it. And all human beings try to make sense of the pain, the brokenness, what's going on, what's happening. And then we usually try to fix it, right? So let's jump into Genesis 3. Let's walk through um, a large portion of this chapter, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Here's our villain, right? The serpent. And we know from looking at the rest of Scripture, this is, this is Satan. This is to represent Satan. And Satan literally means the accuser. Okay, so we have the, the accuser in the form of a serpent here, kind of coming in to the Garden of Eden, where things are very good, God says. And then he says, he said to the woman, <clears throat> the serpent did, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The problem is sin. The problem is sin, period. This event in history that we read about right here is the most important event that has ever happened to help us understand what is wrong with the world. All the things around us, all the strife, all the brokenness outside of us and inside of us, it all comes back to this story. The brokenness all around us, in our world that we look at, read on the news, in our city that we experience firsthand, and even deep inside of us, it all goes back to Genesis 3. 
It all goes back to the bite of this fruit. All of it. And most human beings would say there's a problem. Like I said, they would say that. But not everyone thinks this is the problem. Not everyone would say all of our issues go back to this. A lot of people would say, instead of saying the problem is me, the problem is my rebellion and my sin and how I've rebelled against God, some people think that, you know, I'm pretty good. It's everyone else that's the problem. Or my group or my tribe is good, and that group and that tribe, tribe is the problem with the world. We want to look outside of us for the problem. We want to point fingers to something else besides us. Could be the family we were raised in, the bad experiences that we've had, the, 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 the external given identities, identities put on us or given to us that we don't like. We could have these commitments that we're, that we're bound to. We don't want to be committed. We don't want to be bound to anything. Could be religious or cultural traditions that we think restrict our freedom and make us unhappy. That's the problem. Or maybe it's just anything difficult, discomfort, hard conversations, hard decisions, hard thoughts. The problem is out there. The problem is not in here. And before we go any further, knowing and defining, diagnosing the problem is very, very important. We can't move forward. We can't get to solutions. We can't get to good news unless we actually talk about what the problem actually is. Imagine if there was a cure for cancer discovered. Imagine this. And this wouldn't be that big of a deal, though, if you didn't think cancer was a problem. The only way that we would celebrate a cure for cancer is to actually believe, no, cancer is a problem. And if that happens, it is to be celebrated and rejoiced over. But if we don't actually think cancer is a problem, the actual solution, the cure to cancer, is not going to be that big of a deal. We have to define the problem before we move forward. And the problem is sin as a result of our rebellion. And notice Satan's strategy here. Notice the strategy. He's not, kind of, he's not coming with violence. He's not coming trying to scare Adam and Eve. He's not holding a knife to them and saying, you better eat of the fruit or I'm going to stab you. He's not, he's not doing that. He's crafty, the scriptures say. He's sneaky. Adam and Eve have no clue who this serpent is. They have no clue. They think that he's just, just you know, slithering around in the garden. And we don't know if he's a snake. I said slither, like he's a serpent. We don't really know how he moves. We don't know a lot about the serpent. But we do know that he's sneaky. And his main, kind of, um, his main goal, or his aim, is to get Adam and Eve to distrust God. He wants to plant seeds of doubt to get them to doubt the goodness of God. You think about these questions in verse 1. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of the, any tree in the garden? Did he actually say that? So he questions God, God's word. He questions God's commands there. And the second question he asks in verse 4. You, sh- you will not surely, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Right? So there it's not really a question, but it's a statement of, of questioning God's love though. He's planting a seed of doubt, a question in Eve's and in really Adam's mind as well in this moment that he's questioning God's goodness. Is God really good? God would let you die. 
He's kind of planting that seed. Like, well, you, you, you won't surely die. But God has told them that they would die if they ate of this tree. He's questioning God's love for them, God's care over them. And he also questions the nature of good and evil. We see this in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Ultimately, knowing everything about God, you will be like God. You will be able to define what good and evil is like God would. This is the promise or the lie, really, that, that, that the serpent is trying to get Eve and Adam to buy into. So she does. She begins trusting the serpent. She begins listening to him. She begins buying in to the things that he's trying to get her to believe. So he, the serpent's aim is really not to get them to disobey God. It's really, to, it's really deeper. It's trying to get them to disbelieve God, to not listen to his words, to not trust that his words are good and right and will lead us to flourishing. We face this today, right, with God's word, the scriptures. There's so much that tells us we shouldn't believe that. That's not true. That's not reality. That's a fairy tale. That's an old book. Whatever it is, there's, there, 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 the culture oftentimes tells us, oh, don't believe, this. don't believe the Bible. That's so outdated, it's so regressive. Why would you believe that? It sounds similar to the garden. You see, all God wanted Adam and Eve to do is to trust him. You can have all of this, Adam and Eve. All of this is good. All of this is yours. All of this is for you to have dominion over, to, to enjoy to, to take pleasure in, other than this one thing. Just don't eat from this tree. Don't eat from this tree. He doesn't give them details of, of why in the moment. Oftentimes, as parents, we do this to our kids, right? Why, 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 they want to know. And sometimes it's just, we just want to say, just trust me. I know what's good for you, and I know that if you eat of this tree, things will go bad for you. All God wants from Adam and Eve is for, for them to trust his goodness, to trust his word. And Satan, the serpent, comes directly against that. That is where the fight is fought in that area. Let's look at verse 7. What happens? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they were naked before, right? But now it says they knew they were naked. It's like they were now living in a different reality. right? Their reality has changed. It's different. So what do they do? It says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So sin is so dark, so dangerous, that it actually causes us, it kind of turns us against ourselves. We become insecure. We become um, uncomfortable. We become unsure of who we really are. We begin to question our value and our worth. And we're unable to face our own nakedness and shame. And so even though they were naked, before this, they felt clothed, they felt secure, they felt comfortable. But when they question the goodness of God, and this happens, they all of a sudden become guilt and shame-ridden. So now to be fully known, to be fully exposed, is now frightening to them. It scares them. They don't want to be known. See, God created us to be fully known and fully loved, Fully known and fully loved. But now on this side of Genesis 3, we operate like to be really truly loved, we can't be fully known. 
All of us deep, deep down are scared to be fully known, to be laid bare because we question, will people really love us? Will people still accept us if they know the true me? So we fake it. We perform. We hide. We have a desperate need to control how people view us and how people see us. We're, we're managers of our image constantly because we don't want to be fully known, because we're afraid of what the consequences may be. So we have these fig leaves, right? What are these fig leaves? What do they represent? But, so really, Adam and Eve are taking these fig leaves and trying to mask or cover up their shame, their nakedness. So the question for us to ask ourselves to figure out what are our fig leaves is, what do I do on, the, on a regular basis to try to prove myself? What do I do on a regular basis to try to be lovable, to be acceptable to the people that I want to be acceptable to? Or what masks do I wear? What are those accomplishments or the lies that we hide behind to keep anyone from seeing the broken us? the real us, the ashamed sinner inside that we all have. See, sin fools us into thinking that we can hide. You can imagine Adam and Eve running around in the garden with some leaves tied around their midsection. It's kind of funny just to think about, right? Like, you really think that this is going to make you look any better, right? We kind of laugh at that or think of that's kind of humorous from the outside, but this is, they were desperate, Anything they could find to cover themselves with, they found. Now, we're like this, right? Like, I, I know all of you have, have been here at one time or another. Um, you go to the bathroom, right? And maybe public bathroom, even, even in your home. And maybe you're in a hurry. There's no one in there with you, and you, just, you get done with your business. You got a question. You can wash your hands, right? We've all been there, right? You're in a hurry. You're like, hmm, I, I, it would really be more convenient right now to not wash my hands and some of you, hey, don't, don't, don't lie. We've all been there, right? You kind of that question. It would be just easier if we could just walk out of the bathroom. Is this just a guy thing? Um, and you're like, you know what? I don't know. You start to think about it. But you know what happens if there's someone in the, someone in the bathroom? You're washing your hands, right? You don't want to be seen or exposed as a dirty, germy person who's not washing their hands after using the restroom, Right? Now, unless someone's in the stall, you may pull, like, the turn the faucet on for 10 seconds, <laughs> shut it off, and then walk out, right? That's another strategy, right? If that's not you, if you're sitting here judging me and judging everyone else who does it right now, maybe you're the person who, who somebody asks, hey, how's it going today? You say, fine, good, all right. Now, you don't really want to talk about all of your junk that you may have going on at the time. Maybe you're the type of person who people are coming over to the house and you go into this unbelievable cleaning mode and you're never that kind of person. But for the 30 minutes before somebody comes over, you're making that place look spotless. Why? Because you don't want to be seen as a slob. You don't want to be fully exposed as someone who can't keep their house together. So you go on this maniac cleaning process before someone walks in your door. Those are lighthearted examples, but we all have these deeper things that we struggle with. Why do you work so hard? Why do some of you or some of us always have to be the rescuer in a situation? Why are we so private and don't want to show any emotion? We don't want to be around people and show emotion in front of other people. 
Why are, why are some of us always looking at trying to be more attractive, be more, more acceptable, more beautiful? Why are we always trying to win arguments on social media to prove ourselves about whatever issue? These are all fig leaves. What are we doing to cover ourselves up, to feel good, to be accepted? So we need to sit in this before we go any further. We need to, we need to ask these hard questions before we move forward, because this is the problem. The problem's not out there. The problem's in here. The problem's inside of us. So we need to do some work on the inside before we move forward with the good news. Okay, let's look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they hide from God. Hiding from each other, hide from God. We've all been there, right? We feel like we've sinned. We feel like we've had a bad day. We've had a bad week. And we don't want to spend time with God. We don't want to be in a room by ourselves and actually be talking to God in prayer when we have this guilt and shame that we can't believe we've, we've done this or that. We hide from God as well. I think God asks them a series of questions, not necessarily to get answers. He knows the answers. He's wanting them to reflect. He's wanting them to do some work inside of them. Hey, why did you do this? Why, why did you believe? What was it about the serpent that caused you to not do what I said? And he moves towards them in, 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 in intimacy. Why are you hiding? Why didn't you come just confess to me? Why did you believe the lie the serpent fed you? Do you believe that I love you and I want what's best for you? You're my creation. You're the apex of my creation. You're the jewel of my creation. You can take responsibility for your sin. You don't have to hide. Notice that God initiates the conversation. Adam and Eve don't want anything to do with God right now. God pursues. When we sin, God pursues. God doesn't hide from us, even though we feel like hiding when we sin. And at the end of that exchange, we see the blame game starting. We're the same way, right? Comes to Adam first. He said, Adam, what's going on? What happened, Adam? She did it. She, she's the one who gave it to me. And she, yeah, 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 it's, it's her fault. And then I don't know if God looks to Eve here, but Eve starts talking. Eve says, no, 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 it's, it's the serpent. The, the little, the, this, 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 he, he, he tricked me. He's, he's a deceiver. He, it's his fault. We already see the blame game happening, which we are no different. Our first, our, our gut reaction, our, our knee-jerk reaction to sin is to think of someone else to blame. Shift the blame. I'm, I'm, I'm just tired. Maybe true. It's not, it's not an excuse, though. I'm just, I mean, I'm really, really lonely. It's maybe true, but it's not and excuse. So God removes them from the garden, and humans will never, on their own initiative, will ever be able to enter back into the Garden of Eden, period. Never can they, on their own, just walk back into the garden. God removes them, and he prevents them from coming back into the garden, which means this perfect communion and relationship with God that they had. It's done in this part of the story. It's done. So it's obvious from this part of the story, our problem is sin. Now, don't hear me say that all the other things that we would define as problems in the world are, 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 are not worth pursuing and healing from and working through. Absolutely. A lot of those things people often think of the problem. We need to deal with those things. We need to heal from those things. We need to get, get help to work through some of those things. 
But that doesn't mean that they were the key problem. The key problem is our sin. So what is sin? What is this idea? Very quickly, uh, sin is simply um, we, we, we are sinners because Adam sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. They are our, our parents. They, we are born into sin because of the sin they commit. We are born into it now. And the guilt of Adam's sin, the scripture tells us, we now have that guilt as well. It's called imputation. The, the, the sin of Adam is now imputed to us, so we have the guilt of, of Adam's sin on us as well. So we're born into it, and we have the guilt of that sin on us, right? Meaning that we have, we deserve the same punishment Adam and Eve had. If you don't kind of, if, if original sin, if, if you're not kind of on board with that and, and, and you think we're, we're bored good mostly, I would just say that um, if you haven't been a parent, um, you, you, that may change your mind, right? 18-month-olds, 24-month-olds-ish, when they first start talking, like, they start using words like mine. They start taking toys away that they want and start hitting other people. And there's nothing, we haven't taught them to do any of those things. They're selfish, right? We're selfish. They have no filters to control it. So we often see original sin most clearly in kids, in, in young people, because they, they don't know how to put the mask on. They don't know how to fake it. Their sin just comes out. And we see that often, right? So you could say that, that, that the sin is breaking God's law. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You could say that sin is so pervasive and deep that it's like it's a, a disease that infects all of us and infects the things that we touch and that we're around. Genesis 6.5 says, the Lord. Just a few chapters later, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin is deep. It's pervasive. The problem is more serious. It's deeper. It's inside of us. It's not out there. It's in here. It's not determined by our circumstances. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18 and 19, he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart, so out of the heart, what's inside, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, those behaviors come from our hearts. Okay. John Piper defines sin as sinning as any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all things. Right. If we don't know the problem, it's going to affect how we live because we're all trying to figure out how to solve or minimize this problem in our lives. So you can say sin is breaking God's law. And yes, sin is deep and, 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 it, and it affects us in that way. But, but ultimately, sin is not trusting God in his goodness and his provision for our flourishing. Right? So Eve, Eve saw that the fruit was good and she ate of it. And it was a matter of trust. It was a matter of what was she, what was she trusting on the inside. So sin could also be defined as is not trusting God and his plan for human flourishing. Say it again like this. Sin isn't bad just because it's forbidden. It is forbidden because it is bad. And sometimes with sin, I think we just think that God threw some arbitrary rules out there for us to break. And when we break them, that's sin. Is sin breaking God's laws? Absolutely. But the purpose of the commandments, the purpose of the guides that God has given us is for our good. 
It's an act of his mercy and grace, and it should lead to our flourishing. It should lead to abundant life. It should lead to the life that God wants us to have, and he, he wants what's best for his creation. And sin is bad because it ruins that. It gets us off track. We're not following the map that God has given us to lead for that. We, we sometimes think of sin, I think, like the speed limit, right? Um, like the speed limit, a lot of us think that's just a suggestion, Right? You know, it's just, it's a, it, we're not going to really hurt anybody if we're a couple miles over the speed limit, right? That, that's sometimes how we view sin. It's just this arbitrary rule that, that, that we're supposed to follow. That's not true. Sin isn't bad because it is forbidden. It's forbidden because it is bad. We sin against God, but then it's also a sin against his way of life, the flourishing that he has set before us. The teachings of the scripture are for our good. They're for our good. And we know sin gets worse after Genesis 3. You have Cain and Abel, right? It's a mess, Genesis 4. Go through the next several chapters. God wipes out everyone except Noah and some of his family, right? Through water, through the flood, because of sin. Um, and then there's a do-over, right? God says, I won't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, um, um, judge the world in that way anymore. So humans in there, that he's, he's given them, um, you know, architecture and the ability to build things. So they build this tower, Right? Great, architecture, they're building cities. This is what God wants us to do, to have dominion, to, to, to do those things in the world. But their motivations are terrible for building this tower. We want to be like God. We want to build this tower so high that people will see it and, and, and praise us instead of praise God. So God has to get rid of the tower as well and scatter them. Sin continues to infect and the world continues to go wrong. And we get, we'll see this through the rest of the Old Testament, right? This is just a, the, the culture becomes a, a, a kind of a, a, a zoomed out picture of Adam and Eve's sin, right? It's, a, it's Adam and Eve's story at a cultural level for the rest of the Old Testament. So here's our question. Do we believe that the problem starts with us? It only starts with us. More specifically, it is in us, sin. First application point is ask yourself that question. Spend some time thinking about that. Do you believe that the problem is inside of you? Do you believe that? But there's good news, right? It's a heavy, it's a heavy topic, right? But there is good news. Even in this chapter, even in Genesis 3, the, most, the darkest probably chapter in the whole scripture, right? There's good news, right? There's good news. So second application point, meditate on these two glimmers of hope we see. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, so this is after this has happened, right? You got to think of God, right? The, the God having a, a, a holy, perfect anger. Here it is. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Right? So I'm going to make this hard for you. I'm going to make you hard. And I'm going to make your enemies, your, your, your offspring, the, the demons, or however we want to work that out, the evil in the world is going to become against her offspring. And, and most theologians believe he's talking about Mary here, talking about Mary. He says, he, so the offspring of Mary, Jesus, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Say, so, yeah, you're going to hurt him. You're going to hurt him. That's part of the plan, right? The part of the plan is for you to hurt Jesus, the evil will. He'll die. 
He'll die. It'll be painful for him. But it's just, it's just your heal, right? It's just a heal. We can come back from a heal injury. But for you, he's going to crush your head. He's going to step on your head and end your life. How do you kill a snake? I've never killed a snake, but most of us know you go for the head. Doesn't take too, right? You go for the head. I think intentionally there, he will crush the head of the serpent, of Satan. Jesus will. This is good news, right? Like after everything we've seen, God is giving us a picture here. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to send one and he will crush you. You're going to have some power here. You're going to get to do your thing, but eventually, Jesus is going to crush you. Theologians call this the first gospel or the proto-evangelion, right? Proto-gospel, first gospel, right? The first gospel picture we see is Genesis 3.15. It's beautiful. And then listen to Genesis 3.21. That's number one. Number two, Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Think about this. They've ruined it, right? God had this all set up. They ruined it. They're naked and they're shamed. And before he removes them from the garden, he makes garments of skins and clothes them. Now, what has to happen for this to happen, right? What has to happen? Well, a life has to be taken, right? It's the first death that we know of in creation, right? Death has to be taken from an animal and blood has to be shed from this animal to kill them, right? Does that sound familiar? A life taken, blood shed, It's pretty cool, right? Like Genesis 3.20 gives us a picture of our redemption, right? He clothes them. He he, he takes care of their nakedness. He takes care of their shame. Still removing them from the garden. Still consequences for their sin. But on the way out, he says, let me clothe you. Let me give you something warm to put around you. Let me take care of the shame and the guilt that you have. Because that is no way to live. I want you to have peace, a measure of peace when you're leaving the garden. It's going to be hard out there, but I'm going to cover you. Jesus covers us. He clothes us in his righteousness, the New Testament tells us. We're hidden in Christ. We're covered by God's grace and mercy in Christ. These images and looking for are just beautiful in this passage. It should give us such hope. Adam and Eve were given, um, they, they fought a battle in this garden with the tree being the center focus, the fruit of this tree. And then Adam and Eve disobeyed. Jesus would also be put on a tree, the cross. He would struggle, but Jesus obeyed. Could have wiped everyone out in that scene, but he goes to the cross. He dies willingly for his enemies. God answers the question of Satan. Is God good? Did God really? Is God really good? And in Christ, God says, yes, God is good. Yes, he's good. The nails The crown, the mocking, the shame, the death, the separation, all of those things Jesus faced. Yes, God is good because he sent his son to die for rebels and sinners. So he answers Satan's questions in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as always, we need your help to believe. As the disciples said, we believe, but help our unbelief. Do we believe that the problem resides inside of us? We have baggage, we have wounds, we have things that we need to heal from, absolutely. But ultimately, sin starts inside of human beings. So help us do the work 
to ask, what are our fig leaves? What do we look to? What is causing us shame? What is causing us guilt? How am I believing what the world tells me and not believing what God tells me? How am I following the ways of the world and the gurus and, the, and, and, and what's popular and what's, what the, 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 the streams of culture? How am I buying into that and not buying into what you say in your word? Help us. We're all prone to wander. We're all prone to go down a different path on the map you've given us. Help us believe. Help us believe in the goodness of your grace and your mercy in Christ. Help us see the hope that we have in Jesus. And even in the midst of this dark and heavy chapter we've just read, that you leave us with two glimmers of hope that we know will come to fruition one day. We know that because we live on this side of the resurrection. Help us, God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.